Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and welcome to Chapter 2 of our long-form series on diving deep into the minutia of a game publishing agreement. And thanks again to game publisher Raw Fury for putting this together, really, uh, by releasing their own game publishing agreement template so that we can talk about it here in virtual legality. Now, if you have missed episode one, we talked about a few things related to this agreement that they released. I'm putting together a playlist so that this will all be captured in a single series. It will be available on the main screen of our channel. You can otherwise click through. And when this is all done, you'll be able to watch however many hours of a lawyer walking through each small piece of a game publishing agreement that suits you. But as we talked about, this agreement isn't actually that long. This is written to be understood even at the earliest stages of negotiation, even really without necessarily having a lawyer in the room. Although, as you listen to me talk about these things in this document, you'll understand why a lawyer is a good idea because there are things here. This is a template document proposed by a publisher with a version of the relationship that in general, the publisher would be perfectly happy to sign as is. But developers have some ability to negotiate certain things, whether that's numbers on the edges, what the advanced payment looks like, what the interest rate looks like on those payments, the delivery date, what notifications have to be sent, all things we're going to talk about and things that a developer can have a hand in. Now, in that first episode, we talked about owning the game. These aren't going to be in pure numerical order in the agreement. I wanted to try to put these in buckets so that people can kind of understand the various interplays between rights and obligations of both the developer and the publisher. So part one was all about owning the game, right? It was a discussion of the definitions in the contract. It was talking about how this was set up for both sides to act in good faith. The fact that the developer had to license certain of its copyrights to the publisher to allow the publisher to do what it wants to do in the agreement. And most importantly, in this first chapter, and you can t check out my entire conversation about this in that first section, that the intellectual property of the game that is being created is going to forevermore be held by the developer and not the publisher. And this is one of those areas which is very commonly negotiated. Who owns what? Does the publisher get to keep certain of the intellectual property because it's going to be paying for certain of the intellectual property? In this document, this is about as developer-friendly as it gets, the developer keeps everything which means that the publisher also had to protect itself in a couple of ways, saying that the developer would not compete with the publisher during the term of the agreement, and I believe it was for one year following the release of the game, and that the publisher, Raw Fury here, would get certain rights, a right of first refusal to step in and say, hey, we want to publish the DLC, we want to publish the sequel, because otherwise they put this money into the production of the game, and the developer has gotten some goodwill, some equity in the value of this brand that wouldn't necessarily be realized if they were just able to kick the publisher to the curb. That being said, the publisher also provided for the ability of the developer to get rid of them for 5% of the gross revenues of the sales of the DLCs and the sequels that they might do without them. And overall, this was a good start to an agreement, as I described it in the first chapter. This is an agreement that seems pretty developer-friendly, even though there are things that can 100% be negotiated, which brings us to chapter two. Now, these next three chapters, two, three, and four, delivering, marketing, and funding the game are really what I consider to be the obligations sections here, right? So that first part was about who owns this intellectual property we are creating, what can they do with it later? And in that case, the developer is going to own the game. 
What obligations does the developer have to develop it, to deliver it? That's going to be covered in this chapter. In the next chapter, we're going to be talking about what obligations the publisher, Raw Fury, has to market the game. What are they doing to get their cut of the profits here? And in part four, we're going to talk about what they are doing, Raw Fury is doing, at the front end of the relationship to help fund the development of this particular game. As we talked about in the last part, a publishing agreement doesn't have to have that funding development component. You can have a complete product that you've otherwise shown to a publisher and they're going to handle marketing and it doesn't have this funding and repayment and other concepts related to those kinds of things. Here, it's a combined development and publishing agreement. You can see that right on the top here, development and publishing agreement. And so it does have those concepts. We will be covering that in part four of this series. But for right now, we're going to talk about delivering the game. So first, we're going to talk about reporting responsibilities. So this is section 10 of the agreement. If you're following along at home, this will, of course, be linked in the description to the video. And we start by saying that publisher understands the need of developer to maintain a flexible schedule. Now, this is a kind of language that you see Raw Fury use in many parts of this template agreement to establish tone, where they are trying to get out and say, hey, we understand. We don't want to be looking over your shoulder during this entire process. You see that at the beginning of the agreement itself. You see that in many different sections. And this can be useful when you're looking at this from a developer to have a feeling that, hey, we're going to negotiate this in good faith. We're going to operate under this contract in good faith. And Raw Fury here is indicating tonally that they want to be your friend. They want to be in business with you. And they understand that they don't want to be looking over your shoulder. But with that is going to come certain responsibilities right? Publisher understands that you want to maintain a flexible schedule in order to focus all efforts and funds, referring to the total principal amount. They want to just remind you that you'll be taking money from them and you'll owe that money back in some respects on making the game in such a way to achieve the vision, capital V, as set out in Appendix A of this agreement. Publisher, therefore, does not require or request any fixed milestone schedule of deliveries over time. Now, I've highlighted that in red. This is a very generous kind of sentence for purposes of the developer. Ordinarily, or very often in publishing agreements of this type, you'll have pretty extensive milestones. If you remember in virtual legality, when we went and we looked at the Activision and Bungie contract for delivery of the original Destiny project before it really was even Destiny, there were discussions of milestones. There were dates to be hit. And, and that's because it's a big AAA title and spending a lot of money on both sides to get that thing done. Here, the indication is that this might be a smaller title. We've already talked about the platform being for PC. We've looked at Raw Fury's uh, portfolio of games. They tend to be slightly smaller. It doesn't have to be smaller, of course. But they don't want to just have to make you hit you're going to deliver a fully sliced alpha uh, by this date. You're going to deliver a beta by this date. You're going to deliver X, Y, and Z. So what this agreement is based around is one final delivery date. And we'll see that in the next section that we review as part of this chapter. But if you can hit that final delivery date, we don't otherwise care about you hitting specifics. But we do need to do our due diligence, says Raw Fury. We do need to make sure that you're not just taking our money and, and burning it in fires or going to Tijuana or whatever else you might do. So the next paragraph kicks in your obligations if you're the developer. In view of the foregoing, in view of our allowing that flexibility and you just have to hit that end milestone final delivery date, developer understands the need of publisher to be able from time to time to request that developer delivers certain materials. Upon request, developers shall electronically deliver within 14 days 
the following set of materials to publisher. And there's four items here. One, the developer will deliver the latest build of the game in an executable state on at least one platform. You'll, you'll show us what this thing looks like as of right now. Number two, an outline of the work that has been done on the game since the last request for materials was made. So we asked about it before, and now you're going to give us a status update. Number three, an outline of the additional work planned until final delivery. What's the roadmap? What needs to be done? And this is going to help publisher and developer both be organized in their thought process, but also start to figure out when and if there needs to be some kind of reworking of that final delivery date. You put out that roadmap and you say, realistically, I can't do all of this by that original date. Now we start to have to talk. Highlighting any changes to previously delivered outlines of additional work. So that roadmap doesn't have to just be a roadmap from right now, but also has to be effectively a red line, a showing of changes between the last time you sent the roadmap. What has changed internally that will be highlighted for Raw Fury that will either alert them of problems, show them places when they could help, and is generally a good idea for a developer internally anyway to be having these roadmaps and to be constantly looking at them and making sure that they're on pace for the project that they've entered into. Finally, they have to deliver a summary of how the money has been spent, or as defined here, initial advance, that money they get when they sign the contract, and the additional monthly advances. How have they been spent? What have you done with them? Please account to us where that money has gone. And if everything looks fine, great. If you've got holes and things, that's when Raw Fury has a follow-up call with you. And again, none of this is unusual. None of this raises a red flag or sends off alarm bells for me. With a couple of exceptions, you know, upon request, developer shall electronically deliver within 14 days. Sets a good time frame, 14 days. I would probably also like to see contours in an ideal world of that from time to time we can request, you know, no more than once a month. Uh, something that's reasonable for what publisher needs to do, but also doesn't just distract. Developer has to be making a game, right? Not just making reports to the publisher. This is the kind of thing that comes out when you have that phone call, when you have that initial walkthrough. If you're representing a developer with Raw Fury. If you're on the Raw Fury side saying, okay, yeah, we could add additional contours around this and it wouldn't be a problem for them because they don't want you to fail. You know, one of the things I try to impress upon people in virtual legality is, yeah, it's easy to look at contracts that are big and long. And I don't think 12 pages is too terribly long, but I am in the business of reading really, really long contracts and say, wow, this big entity is looking for ways to potentially pull one over on me. And I even saw that in comments to part one of this document. I'll tell you right now, I think this is a pretty fair document. I think there's areas to negotiate as there are in any template document presented as part of a negotiation. But overall, I think this is a pretty fair document that is pretty reflective of what Raw Fury has gone out with in terms of its marketing. And to be honest, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to not be when they're willing to go out publicly with a version of the document itself. You would expect that part of putting this out there is at least in part a marketing initiative from the publisher to show how quote unquote fair their document is, even in its initial template setup. And so I think it's easy to look at this and say, wow, the, the publisher is trying to pull one over on the developer. They're going to take the pen. They're going to draft this document. But overall, I think this is a fair document. And I think when I mention things like, hey, I would add a few contours here, don't assume that that means that I think it's bad. It's always the case that you're going to negotiate these documents a little bit. And this is a perfectly normal reporting requirement for a developer that's going to be receiving some amount of money from the publisher in question. The requests for materials, according to this section 10, are not meant to be cumbersome. And all documentation may be informal, but in writing. 
So again, this goes along with the kind of tonal approach that this document takes. Publisher understands the need for, of developer to maintain a flexible schedule. The requests for materials according to this section are not meant to be cumbersome. We want to be aligned with you. Publisher wants to make money. Publisher is in business just as sure as the developer is in business. Developer makes money when they sell games. Publisher makes money when they sell games. So publisher and developer's interests are aligned here. And you can see that writ large in the way that Raw Fury has constructed this in this section, right? They go out and deliberately say, look, it can be informal. We will accept bullet point emails. These don't have to be audited financial statements, but they do have to be in writing because eventually we're going to have to have a file folder of things that we looked at. We're going to have to show our executives or our management board or whatever their structure is at that entity that we were doing our diligence, we were doing our jobs. If something goes wrong, especially... So it has to be in writing, but you don't have to kill yourselves to do this because we know you're in the business of making hopefully a great video game and not just making reporting to us. If you're on the developer side, you love to see this kind of language uh, because it does give you a certain amount of flexibility, which is exactly what this section suggests. As long as the informal documentation serves publisher's intent to understand and follow the progress of the game development. Now, this is the Raw Fury publisher side protection. And, and this, again, makes sense to me. They say, okay, we will accept informal documentation. It can be email bullet points, but it still has to perform the function that we've asked for in A, B, C, and D, right? We still have to be able to understand what you're saying here. It can't be in code. It can't be sloppily done. We have to be able to do our job to tell how things are progressing, how the money's been spent, and to make sure that everything is going in a direction where we are both going to have a game to release and we're both going to make money. Publisher may request the delivery of above-mentioned materials with the intent to share with a third party. In that case, requests according to this Section 10 will state this intent, that they're going to share it, and outline publisher's reasoning, along with any specific requests for additional materials needed to make a complete delivery to a third party. Now, this is not an unusual request for a publisher or any other party in any kind of contract circumstance. It isn't as contoured as I would like if I were on the developer side here. Certainly, they have the ability to share materials with a third party, especially in instances where the publisher might be trying to sell the company, right? Publishers going to have relationships with all these various developers, and maybe they wind up wanting to sell their assets. And the potential buyer for the company would always want to know what is the contractual soup that the publisher is invested in. And so the publisher is going to want to be able to say, hey, this is the current state of play for these games. These are the contracts we have, et cetera, et cetera. That's not unusual. Where I start to say, okay, we need to add a little bit more color here is when we start to get into, in that case, requests will state the intent, we're going to share it, and outline publisher's reasoning. What does that mean? Publisher can have any reason it wants. There's no ability to consent. There's no ability to object. In an ideal world, if I'm on the developer side of a provision like this, I would say, okay, that's totally fine. I understand where you're coming from. There are certainly instances in which you might need this right. Consulting with my client, if again, I'm on the developer side, I would say, are you sensitive to this at all? Is there any reason that you think would not be justified for sharing? Are you concerned about competitors? Do we want to carve out that says you're not going to share it with anybody that we name on a list that you really hate and you think is directly competing with you in your field, in your genre or elsewhere? Uh, do you think that you should get a consent right in general, that you should be allowed to consent to this sharing to a third party? 
And then maybe you would agree that it won't be unreasonably withheld, that you won't keep that consent back just to cause publisher harm, but that you need to at least have a veto right at the table to say, no, obviously this would harm me if it were shared in this specific way that maybe publisher isn't even thinking about, but that you want to have that kind of voice. So when we get to these kinds of provisions, and this isn't saying anything bad about the template, right? You don't negotiate against yourself. I wouldn't expect Raw Fury to have those kinds of notions in their own document They expect developers, after talking with them, to have their own thoughts, have their own counsel, advance these things and say, yeah, okay, that probably doesn't bother us if there's a consent that won't be unreasonably withheld. So again, I think at the end of the day, this is aligning everybody's interests properly. I think it's a pretty good document, but there are still places where the average developer might have things that they would want to see changed. There is no contract that I have worked with in more than a decade and a half of doing this that doesn't have at least a few changes that the parties want to implement in a template document like this one. Continuing with this part, this is the main operative obligation of the developer. We will see other obligations, certainly to repay money, other promises they make about what they are doing and what they will ultimately deliver. But this is the ultimate obligation of the developer to deliver a game. Section 15, delivery and approval. On the final delivery date, and this is one of the reasons why I'm going to keep up part one probably in all these chapters is because this is where the definitions live. We can see final delivery date is the date on which publisher is delivered a gold master for the platform that we've agreed to as part of this document. On that final delivery date, Developers shall deliver a fully functional gold master for the game in executable object code form on the platform in electronic format, bug free as here and after defined and from which publisher can create copies of the game. So it's going to be an electronic version. It's going to be fully functional. It's going to be bug free as they're going to talk about and from which publisher can create copies of the game. Now they define bug here, capital B bug to mean the following. Any deviation from the commonly accepted standards for normal operations of games or any material error, including without limitation, an abnormal cessation of functioning of the game, but shall not or shall expressly not include deviations from that commonly accepted standards for normal operation of games that are not considered serious enough to block production or play. So that's a bunch of legalese, but it's basically saying, look, There can be certain bugs. When we say bug-free, we don't necessarily mean bug-free as in never, ever, ever a bug. But when we say bug-free, it's not going to have anything that is a material error, a significant error in the operation of the game, including crashes. It's just abnormal cessation of functioning of the game or, or probably extensive crashes. And it will not include bugs that are pretty standard for this type of game, which is a funny way of thinking about it if you're on the consumer side, right? If the industry just kind of slowly slides into more of a bug-filled morass and the cyberpunk bugs just start to fill all normal video games, then a provision like this in a contract basically says, well, if it's if it's relatively market to have all these ridiculous bugs, then that's fine. It's only when you get outside of market that you're going to have a problem here. Now, I also wanted to point out one other small problem I have with this, and that's when we look at the definition of gold master. So Goldmaster is defined again in section one of this agreement as a release candidate milestone, which passes all of publishers and platforms requirements. It is considered the finished product locked and ready to be reproduced and sold. Goldmasters are not necessarily bug free, but bugs they contain are not considered serious enough to block production or play. So here's my issue with this, and you might already be able to spot it. Goldmasters are not necessarily bug free 
except that the actual delivery sentence is on the final delivery date, developers shall deliver a fully functional gold master bug free. And they go on to define bug in a very similar fashion as they define the lack of bugs in the gold master definition. But if I had my druthers, I would change this to say uh, without many bugs or not necessarily bug free and maybe change even this definition in the gold master definition to not have this kind of it doesn't mean bug free, but you have to deliver it bug free. But bugs actually means that it doesn't have to be bug free. I think we can all get to understanding that it doesn't mean that it has to be completely entirely without bugs. But that kind of ambiguity is what drives lawyers up a wall. So I did spot that when I was doing this uh, preparation for this section. Uh, and I did want to point it out because eh, it just bugs me just a little bit. Continuing with the section, developers shall notify publisher immediately if there are reasons to believe that the game will be delayed or if it becomes aware of any problems related to the game. Makes total sense. Developer and publisher shall mutually agree on any adjustment or change of final delivery date, but publisher shall not reject such request without reason. Now, this is always a friction point, right? So you're in a situation now where you're not going to hit that final delivery date. Maybe you created a roadmap now and reports that have indicated that you're just not going to make that date that you were supposed to make. So you call up the develop, you call up the publisher and you say, hey, we're going to have to push this back. And the contract says we have to mutually agree on a legitimate date, but publisher can just not agree. So we have to protect the developer there. And thankfully, this template already does that. It says we won't reject such a request without reason, but publisher could have many good reasons. Hey, we said we were going to get this thing out. It has to get out. You guys have to figure out a way to get it out. And this is one of those points where you just start fighting because at some level, if a game doesn't exist, a game doesn't exist. And we talked about it in the opening section of this series, but you have to have a certain amount of trust in the other party. You have to have that good faith concept. And thankfully, that's actually written down in black and white in section two of this agreement because both sides are incentivized. But if things get to a point where one another don't trust each other, this can be a major significant issue. Why is it such a significant issue? Well, we'll see. Any such adjustment must be suggested in writing by one or the other party no later than 60 days before the final delivery date. So once you get within that window, it's hell or high water, we're landing this plane. Any such suggestion of change to the final delivery date shall include a new final delivery date with necessary data and materials to support why the change is proposed and how developers' time should be spent between the original and adjusted final delivery date. So look, if you need an extra two months, you're going to bring us another roadmap that shows us how your workflow is going to get you to final delivery with that extra two months so that we can approve it. And if we don't like what that looks like, says Raw Fury, well, then we can reject it. That's a reason that we could reject it. And again, I don't take that away from them. This is totally normal for a publisher to want to do. And in all honesty, if this is all working properly, the developer should like to have to be this specific about what is going to happen with their resources. Any change to final delivery date, if accepted by publisher, shall not entitle the developer to further developer funding and publisher shall have no obligation to supply developer with any further funding than the total principal amount unless the parties mutually agree in writing. Said another way, okay, yeah, you might get extra time. Publisher is not committing as part of an extension here to additional funding. If you need additional funding, that's going to be something that if you're on the developer side, you're either going to have to find for yourself, whether it's bootstrapped or otherwise, or 
you're going to have to have that as part of the conversation with the publisher. Hey, look, we can do this, but we're going to need X amount of dollars on the understanding that we haven't gotten to yet because it's in a later section that that's going to have to be paid back off the top of profits from the game anyway. So you don't want to be in this scenario. You want to start out on the right foot with a contract that sets a final delivery date that you can hit with hopefully some stuff built in, but it's never going to be perfect. Mistakes can be made. And this is a process that needs to be in these contracts in order to establish this. I don't think that this is untoward. I don't think that this is anything that you shouldn't expect, but developers, when they're sitting down in the room with their own lawyer, going over a contract that looks a lot like this one, have to understand what the implications of these things are. And those implications can be severe. Timely delivery in accordance with the final delivery date is of the essence of this agreement. What does that sentence mean? It means that some courts somewhere in the past held that a delay in delivery of something under a supply contract that looks a little bit like this one said, well, without that sentence, it's not a material breach of the deliverer's obligations. And so we're going to give them an extension effectively by court order. And so now it's generally good practice to put in if a date is important to you, that time is of the essence in terms of delivery. You will see a sentence like this one in most agreements that have some kind of delivery component on one side or the other. And you see that kind of reiterated in the next sentence. In the event developer fails to deliver the gold master for the game by the final delivery date, unless such delivery date has been extended by mutual agreement by the parties in accordance with the aforementioned procedure that we just talked about, Developers shall be deemed to be in material breach of this agreement. I probably don't need to tell you that you don't want to be in material breach of an agreement. That means that you could potentially be accruing damages, that you could be potentially accruing liabilities, penalty amounts, whatever it might be. If you are in breach of the agreement, that means that the other side has the legal ability to go and extract funds and value from you. If publisher terminates this agreement pursuant to this section 15 and section 22, which is about term and termination, we will get to that in a later portion of this series, all amounts paid by publisher in connection with the game shall be fully refundable. The stuff they paid you on signing, the stuff they advanced to you is owed back to them including any amount spent by publisher in accordance with the developer funding repayment section and the service spend section, along with any other incurred costs that publisher can reasonably maintain and prove to be associated with development of the game. They may have internal costs. And this is one of those areas where, again, if I'm developer, I want a little bit more color about what you mean by your own incurred costs. What are you counting there? Perhaps get a sentence that actually describes what that includes and maybe excludes some things. Get a flavor for that. But again, what's happened now is that you failed to hit your delivery date and the publisher wants its money back. Now, why doesn't that keep me up at night if I'm on the developer side? It's because of the incentive alignment. Publisher is not in the business of being a bank. They don't want to loan out money, have a game not be released, and get it back. So this all makes sense. You want to be able, if you're on the publisher side, to say those dates are important. They are serious. You will be in breach if you don't hit them. You need to talk to to us. You need to report things. You need to mention what's happening at least 60 days out from what we are planning for the delivery date because we're in the business of selling a game that actually exists. So when we start our magazine ads or our interviews or whatever it is that we're going to do to market this thing, we need to know that it's not coming out. It's one of the reasons why in this series in virtual legality earlier or later last year, we talked about 
some of the problems with delaying Cyberpunk four times. And that's before it launched as poorly as it did in terms of bugs and things, not in terms of sales as we saw. But because delays hurt so much, you've got marketing already up and running. When they delayed that game, I believe it was in October, they already had Subway ads up and things for November release that didn't happen. So Raw Fury is justified to say we need that 60-day window. If you don't hit your delivery date, we've invested in you. We've used whatever internal resources we've had to prep a marketing campaign. And we're going to need our money back. Now, the interesting thing about that is if everything has gone appropriately, developer doesn't have that money because it's been spent on producing the video game. And so you wind up at loggerheads discussing what, if anything, should happen to the intellectual property, the continuing relationship, whether there's anything to salvage. And that is its own fun conversation. Nobody wants to be there. But these penalties, with the exception of the last, which I would ask for more color on, aren't in and of themselves untoward. Now, after release, you also have a support commitment, right? This is about delivering the game. So we talked about reporting about the creation of the game, delivering it on its final date. Section 17 pops in and says, after it's released, you're going to help support it. During the three months following the initial release of the game, at publisher's request, and again, perfect world, I'd probably say written request. I don't really want to be on the hook for phone calls that somebody doesn't report up the chain at the developer. Developer shall fix reproducible bugs or defects and provide reasonable telephone and email support to publishers employees in connection with the technical support of users of the game. Again, all this makes sense. You've got a three month support coverage window. Uh, If this were done separately, this would look like a support agreement or technical support agreement that's for three month term that says we're going to fix the stuff that's reproducible. In a more long form document of this type, you might also see a full description of what bugs are, what levels they are, what the response time has to be for specific levels of bugs. You might be familiar with that if you've looked at any enterprise software, they tend to be a bit longer in that context. And as you can see in green here, the developer has agreed to also effectively tell Raw Fury what to say in terms of support and to train them on what specific issues might relate to the game. Now, that is going to take some labor time at developer, but this publisher contract is actually pretty nice. It says publisher shall reimburse developer its reasonable pre-approved out-of-pocket expenses as documented in connection with rendering telephone support and training services. So this is something that would have to be answered kind of separately. I, again, would probably like to see a little bit more specifics here, but effectively that Raw Fury will pay developer for its time in getting its people up to speed to provide the direct support on the premise that at least some game players are going to go straight to the publisher rather than seek out the probably smaller developer. During the aforementioned period, so this again is the three-month after-release window, developer will make itself available for interviews, conferences, and other marketing or promotional efforts arranged by publisher. Furthermore, developers shall have the right to engage with players of the game as long as said engagement is prudent and respectful towards players. Publisher and developer hereby agree to collaborate on any sort of event that may solicit a meaningful response to players, journalists, or others that might be interested in the game. So a couple of things to unpack here. First of all, the first and most important item is that this is a three-month window for marketing. Developer will make itself available for interviews, conferences, and other marketing or promotional efforts. Makes total sense. As a matter of fact, this is perhaps where we see the most alignment between developer and publisher. There is now a real existent game out in the market And Raw Fury was effectively hired at the cost of 50% of the profits of the game to make this kind of stuff happen, to be able to get in the room for interviews and conferences and other marketing and promotional efforts on TV, on radio, wherever else it might be that makes sense. That's what you hired the publisher to do is to sell this thing. You make the game, they sell it. 
And so it makes total sense for developer to want to be a part of that because that's going to be what a lot of people want to see. Now, again, perfect world. I might like to see language here that says something along the lines of and developer will be paid its reasonable out of pocket expenses for that travel or that there'll be a schedule of those kinds of things. But the incentives are aligned. Developer wants to do it. Publisher wants them to do it. So there aren't those kinds of friction points that we talked about in earlier sections where something has gone terribly wrong. Continuing, that sentence about developer having the right to engage with players probably jumps out at you as unusual, right? But remember what we talked about in the first section of this agreement, and that is that they've given exclusive rights to Raw Fury to basically control this video game, to market it, to put it out there, to reproduce it. And without a sentence like this, it could be argued that even the developer of the game doesn't have the right to go and engage with players and tell them about certain things in respect to the game, etc., without Raw Fury coming in and saying, yes, you are permitted to do that. So Raw Fury puts this in the publishing agreement, says, yes, you can do this specifically in black and white because we want the developer to be able to engage with the, with the game players. But if you're the publisher, you also have a vested interest in the developer not uh, saying untoward things, not creating a controversy. And as if you follow virtual legality or if you've just been on the internet and not living under a rock for the past five years, you know that these kinds of things can get out of hand, particularly on social media and maybe with an individual that doesn't necessarily represent the entirety of a developer or another company, but that can quickly snowball based on what people see in that context. So the publisher has a vested interest in making sure that that doesn't happen. We don't want to spike sales, spike sales downward, and we don't want the developer to just go hide under a rock. So we put in a sentence like this. It says, yeah, absolutely engage with the community. These are your fans. We need you marketing on the ground just as much as you need us marketing and interviews and conferences, but you have to be respectful towards players, which can be difficult in some circumstances when the players aren't necessarily so respectful to you. And you've seen in various news stories over the past couple of years, certainly as long as virtual legality has been around, developers and players having few uh, let's call them confrontations. And Raw Fury wants to get in front of that and make sure that that doesn't happen. They also say that they will collaborate. This is what we might consider an agreement to agree. We don't know what this might look like. We don't know what an event would look like that would solicit a meaningful response to the various stakeholders in the game industry. But we do know that we want to both be on that phone call and figuring out what that looks like. So this is much like section two, where we talk about we're going to do good faith. We're going to sell this game. We're going to do our best. Hey, if there's something that probably Raw Fury, if we're being honest, comes up with as a possible event that could be meaningful to everybody, you as the developer agree that you're going to collaborate. You're going to be partners in putting this thing together and you're both going to participate because that's going to be necessary as well. The final item here kind of relates to what we were talking about with respect to the right of first refusal in the first section. It says, developers shall not make any claims of future development of game without consulting with publisher first as further development support from publisher is not guaranteed. Now, you can see I've highlighted this last section in a couple of different colors, primarily because we've got the same kind of small a ambiguity issue that we have throughout a couple of other sections in this document. And that's that we don't understand without consulting with publisher first. We don't understand what that means. Uh, does it mean that publisher gets a consent right? Do they get a veto right? Can they just say no? Or does it mean developer has to go and put in a quick phone call to Raw Fury that says, hey, we're going to tell our people we're going to support this with these three DLCs and we're giving you a heads up because this sentence requires us to quote unquote consult with you. Is that sufficient? Probably not. Probably at that point where you're telling your publishing partner things and not 
talking to them about it as a business partner. Things aren't going great, but we don't know what we don't know, and we don't know that a consent is required just reading this sentence. It's also worth noting the green part, right? Publisher here, Raw Fury, is, is putting a little thing in here that says, hey, just so we're clear, you shouldn't be making promises you don't know whether you can keep. You shouldn't be writing checks that you don't know whether you can cash because further development support from us is not guaranteed. And further, depending on exactly what we negotiated and what exists in the prior sections of this document, we have a right of first refusal on your wanting to do those things. And so we have to have a seat at that table, but maybe we don't like your final output. Maybe there's an issue with the marketing. Maybe we just both misunderstood what the market is for this genre or this look. And you shouldn't be making promises to people that are not only going to make us look bad because we're your publisher, they're ultimately going to make you look bad if you were depending on X amount of dollars to get this thing done. And we we're looking at it and saying, you know what? This just didn't work out the way we would hope. We we're going to send you on your way. No ill wishes, but we're not going to fund or publish your games in the future. So in some respects, this is Raw Fury putting this language in here in a kind of nice way. Hey, look, we are not making any promises for the future, so you shouldn't make promises in the future. But it's also kind of trying to say, we want to be a part of that conversation just as much as that right of first refusal section did in the first part of this series. So these are the three sections I wanted to highlight about delivering the game. We've now talked about owning the game. The developer is going to own the game after this is all said and done. And now we've talked about the obligations they have in delivering the game and how if they fail to meet that final delivery date, bad, bad things happen. And those are the kinds of sections that if you are a developer, your lawyer is going to walk through with you very, very carefully because you definitely always want to know when there's a sentence in the contract that says you owe somebody else a lot of money. And there's a couple of those in here, not unusual again, but you're always going to want to know those. And so that's why we covered them in this section. In the next part of this series, we're going to talk about marketing the game. We're going to talk about what Raw Fury has to do to meet its end of the bargain and to try to sell this game into the market. So please join us for that section, part three of this long form series, read through of a game publishing agreement. And if you have any of your own thoughts or comments, please leave them to this video. I love having these conversations. We have never done a series like this in virtual legality. So if there's something you'd like to see tweaked or different, or you just want to support us as we go through this 10-part endeavor to talk about a single template document, please do let us know in those comments. Otherwise, if you like this video, please like, subscribe, share, tell folks we are here having conversations about the business and law of pop culture, video games, music, movies, television, and maybe books. We'll see. Uh, and if you don't know anyone that doesn't know about this channel, I think I did that wrong, a few too many negatives, please share it with anybody that you think might like this content. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.